session with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good evening and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram, or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcasts on iTunes. Again, our studio number 310-441-0555. Okay, before I start with the book of the week for this past week, I want to announce the book of the week for this week, which I'll talk about on next Monday's show. And that is The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, 27 Psychiatrists and Mental Health Experts Assess a President. Uh, this book just came out. And um, when I went to order it, it was back ordered. And I even went to a bookstore and they were so back ordered, they said their warehouse had sold out of them. But um, 27 psychiatrists and mental health experts met uh, at Yale, or I think more of them might have met, but 27 of them contributed to this book, which came out of this duty to warn conference that happened at Yale, organized by Bandy Lee, Dr. Bandy Lee. And uh, I started the book a bit last night and today, and it's a very interesting one. Uh, in psychology or in psychiatry, there's something called the Goldwater Rule, which basically states that psychiatrists and psychologists cannot give a diagnosis from for anyone, any public figure, that they themselves have not personally interviewed and assessed. However, in this book, their argument is, or their premise is, that we also, as mental health professionals, have a duty to warn um, to protect individuals and even, in this case, protect the public. And they feel that it is in their duty or responsibility to warn the public. And they talk more about dangerousness rather than giving a specific diagnosis. They definitely talk about different characteristics and traits that he might have, but they don't uh, give a specific diagnosis. Um, so far, it's been an interesting read, and I'm looking forward to completing that and sharing it with you or talking about it next week on the show. But the book for this past week, which is also a very interesting one that I'm glad I read, was The Cyber Effect by Mary Aiken. The Cyber Effect, an expert in cyber psychology, explains how technology is shaping our children, our behavior, and our values, and what we can do about it. And it's by Dr. Mary Aiken. And it really was a good book. I'm glad I read it because, um, you know, we're, we're still trying to figure out what the effect of the Internet and technology is on all of us. And we really don't know. Um, we're trying to figure it out. But this book does a great job of sharing a lot of information and stories that are very important and can be very helpful. But also, as she talks about, we need to open up the discussion about what's happening, how is the internet and technology affecting us, and also being proactive, that we shouldn't just be passive and let 
people who are involved or in charge of technology and development of these things to make all the decisions. We should all be involved because there's a lot of important issues at hand. And, and I think that's very important. She ends the book talking about that. Um, and also, as she points out several times throughout the book, we tend to want to wait for extensive research before we make statements about um, how what's what's going on, uh, how something might affect us, how it affects our kids. And, you know, we, we wait for the research for the research to come out. Unfortunately, um, sometimes we don't have time to wait for the research in that things are happening so fast and we really can't do research on everything that we can't just wait. And that's what she also makes the point of, which I think is very important. We can't just wait for 10-year studies to come out. And even some of the things we can't really study, we can't check to, and expose some kids to violence and some kids not to violence from a very young age and see what happens when they watch violent videos um, as children. But we reasonably can assume that those things will be harmful to them and we can see some of those effects. So I really enjoyed uh, the book uh, that it gave a lot of different perspectives on different aspects that I'll share some of them with you. And I hope you'll read this book, The Cyber Effect. Um, to begin with, we, it's impossible to understate the impact that technology has had on us in the recent uh, generation or past year, specifically with things like the internet and smartphones becoming uh, so available and so many people having them and becoming so much a part of our lives. I think for most people, if they leave the house without their phone, they'll feel almost naked now because it's such a big part of, of who we are, how we connect and communicate with each other and with the world that really we feel like we can't live without it. And this itself is a problem, something we should be concerned about. She cites a 2015 study um, looking at uh, Americans, and it's found that they check their phone, the average American checks their phone over 200 times a day. 200 times a day. Um, and you know what? I thought about it, and I was looking at my own life, and even I could see myself doing that. Fortunately, I do a job where when I'm seeing clients, my phone is, of course, completely put away and out of sight. Um, but when I'm not working, I can see that, yeah, I do check my phone a lot and we, we can check it way too many times. So in the words of clinical psychologist, Michael Cito, we have to be aware that the internet is essentially the largest unregulated social experiment of all time. We don't know exactly what the effect of the internet is in technology, but we're seeing some signs that are definitely worth looking at. So for example, she talks about babies. And um, if you're like me, you might be walking around and you see kids in strollers and almost all of them now seem to have an iPad or a phone that they're holding or somehow is propped up on their stroller that they're watching and dazed and not really looking around as they look down at their phone, tablet or whatever it might be. And in some ways this has become the norm and this is very unfortunate. As she points out, um, even for their vision, this can be bad up to the first two years of life. They're developing their visual abilities and visual acuity, and screens can have a negative effect on that. Um, so we don't want to do that. So it's recommended that kids before the age of two have no screen time, no TV, no iPads, no smartphones, uh, no baby Einstein, which I'll talk a bit about. Um, they don't need them. 
What they need more than anything, as she points out, is face-to-face -face interaction with you. They need to look at you, you need to talk to them, you need to play with them, um, thinking that we've occupied them because we've given them something to watch is definitely not effective parenting and we have to be aware of the negative consequences this can have um, and this idea of things like baby einstein or you know i'm gonna help build my child's vocabulary when they're four months old no research has found that this works if anything some research found that it could be harmful to their development um, but definitely no one can claim that they or with scientific validity Showing your child something like baby Einstein uh, when they're six months old, eight months old, is going to help them become more uh, verbally fluent or smarter, more intelligent. Even that name, baby Einstein, you're going to grow a baby Einstein. It doesn't work, and if anything, it's going to harm them. So there's a lot of people marketing these types of things out there, whether they're apps on phones, programs on television, um, whatever else might be, even toys. She talks about this toy where basically it's made for babies and it's called like the activity center something like that and it's made in a way that you can lock in an ipad so the baby can be looking at the ipad the whole time somehow this is a good thing but it's really the worst thing you can do to your kid so don't buy into any of those things your kid needs face-to-face -face interaction they need to play with their hands and with you and they need to connect more than they need anything you don't need to have them learn anything in the traditional way that we might think about learning um, so she does a great job talking about that in this book and um, looking at kids you know I don't have a lot of time so I want to talk about di different topics so there's a great chapter on babies but then with kids um, as with also teenagers but especially with kids we have to be aware of what they're being exposed to um, even in, in my therapy with parents of children, we do talk about being aware of what your kids see and do online because there are, for example, apps that kids can go on. And uh, there was one I remember where they can sing songs. They can kind of sing along with the song or record their, themselves singing and then share it on this app. And then this uh, mother of a daughter of an eight, nine-year-old found out that there were grown men that were following their daughter on this app, um, which of course is completely inappropriate and can potentially lead to some negative things. And we have to be aware that although we think, well, my kid is in our home or even in the car with you, um, so they must be safe, we have to realize that essentially the cyber world, cyberspace as we call it, really is its own space. It is this place essentially. Um, and even worse, although they're in your home, they can connect with virtually anyone, and unfortunately anyone can connect, connect to them. Uh, and I know that sounds very pessimistic and maybe even uh, it sounds like it's paranoid. And as she points out in the book, she does talk a lot about negative things in here, but it's to really balance the conversation so we understand, yes, technology is great, it's done all these great things, but let's be aware of the negative consequences as well. So I don't want you to think your child is constantly being preyed on by um, sexual predators, but you do have to be aware that it's possible that does exist out there. And thinking, okay, my kid is in their room on the internet, nothing could go wrong. It's absolutely not true. And you want to be aware of what they're looking at, um, who they're connecting to, and what sites they're going on. And you might think you have a parental control on there, but as you can imagine, and as is usually the case, your kids are more technologically advanced than you are. 
most of the time, and there are lots of ways to get around those things. So you can't just think it's going to be okay. And if you have a young child, there's definitely videos on YouTube, um, and they don't have to be the ones that are over 18, that are definitely going to be not okay for them. And you don't want them seeing those things, and it's important to monitor that. So what's the solution? It's not a simple one. It doesn't mean never let your child on the internet or let them do whatever they want, but be aware. And if you ask me, they don't need to start so soon going on the internet by themselves. Don't let them explore this cyberspace again, where really everything exists from wonderful things like things that will entertain them and educate them, but also to horrible things like pornography and uh, individuals who want to do harmful things or exploit them or use them in bad ways. That's just the reality of the situation. And we have to be aware of that. Um, it's not a safe place. Again, I think it's a, it's a new frontier for us where your child can be sitting in your room or in their room in your home and you have to be aware of what they're doing and who they're interacting with. It's not like before where if you knew they were in their room, you know what was going on. So we have to be aware of those things. And also for children, uh, we have to be aware of what kind of things they're seeing, not just about the internet, but the videos they see in TV shows. I remember seeing this study comparing current TV shows and child entertainment to the ones uh, when I was a kid, and they were very different. When I was a kid, you had things like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, which was very slow-paced, but really it was like real life. You know, people would talk and have conversations, and he even he would kind of talk in a slow way, which would make it easier to stay with and would actually force you to sustain your attention. But when they compare it to children's entertainment now, it's constantly flashes and moving and cuts in and out and all sorts of things are happening, really overstimulation, which is not good. It's going to make your kid keep wanting to watch, but it's almost like a drug. They're watching it because it's like so overstimulating that they can't stop watching it. And now they feel like they need that. And now if you have them watching that kind of entertainment for a while, and then you bring them to regular conversation or regular type of TV, they're not going to want it. And it reminds me of um, the same thing that happens with food. If you give your kid lots of fast food and foods that contain preservatives and too much sugar and things that aren't good for them, uh, they get hooked on those things. And if you try to give them an apple, they're like, what is this? This doesn't taste like anything anymore. And so the same thing happens with their focus and attention. And even this can be connected to a rise in ADHD that we see, where people are just so much more ready to get entertained quickly or to have these things that don't require them to sustain their attention that they're actually not as good at focusing anymore. And I don't think that's just about kids. Even for myself, um, I think when I look back to my undergrad years, I was actually able to focus better um, because I wasn't as exposed. The phones were kind of becoming popular, but it wasn't the way it is now. And I got a little bit worse. This year has actually been helpful because I've been reading more than I have ever because I'm doing this book a week thing, and that's helped build my focus and concentration a lot better. But I realized that just being on phone and the distractibility and the type of things we're seeing has affected me too. I'm kind of running out of time here, but she also talks about teenagers and have to be, we have to be aware of what they're getting into. Um, even kids are watching pornography uh, from a very young age. And again, the things we're seeing are not appropriate for them at all. And the type of things they see, you know, she talks about how before maybe one boy would find a Playboy magazine that belonged to their dad and they see a few images, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world. But now they can see things that are really not okay and very extreme and can really traumatize them. 
And we have to be aware of that for the kids and even for teenagers. And teenagers can get involved with a lot of things. Um, she shares some horror stories of even kids who are found by people, basically online pimps, and then go into prostitution. Again, not to alarm you, but to rec make you recognize these are the real things that exist in this cyber world that we are now living in. Uh, so throughout the book, she and then she talks about dating and online, dating and online relationships. And as I always say, I don't call it online dating or it shouldn't be used as online dating. It should be online meeting and then you do the dating in person. When you try to get to know someone just online, it doesn't work. Uh, she uses a term that I thought was interesting, instimacy. Basically, instantly feeling close to someone connected the way that can happen online when you start sharing things with each other. And not only that, uh, as she mentions, when we start to connect with someone and we have a first favorable impression, we kind of use this halo effect and everything we don't know about and we fill in in our mind positively. So we get to know them a little bit, but the rest we fill in ourselves. And this is the why people have this feeling sometimes when they meet in person after connecting online for a long time, like they don't actually know each other at all. They felt like they were so intimate, but it was really this false intimacy or this intimacy where they pretended in some ways because they didn't know each other, but they felt closer when they really didn't know each other whatsoever. Um, so again, she's an expert in cyber psychology and knows the field very well. So I think this is a great book that I believe came out last year. So it's pretty up to date. Looking at what's happening to us as people and as a, as society, in relationships, um, I think definitely relationships have taken a hit. People are so much more comfortable communicating online through texts in uh, indirect ways and not through face-to-face -face contact that we're losing that ability. And our kids are really the first generation, this, this generation right now, who are going to have it from when they were born. And we're going to see what the effects are. I think, unfortunately, they won't be very good. But even with adults, we see that it, it's much more comfortable for them to text than to talk face-to-face. -face. She even talks about people who fall in love with, whether it's AI or robots and other things, um, or online kind of girlfriends, because it's a lot easier. And again, this comfort zone is a big problem. We feel comfortable, but we're not facing reality. We're not living a real life. And we have to be aware of the consequences and uh, as I mentioned, she does a good job of saying we need to open and continue this dialogue on what is the effect of the Internet and on technology on us, our kids, our relationships. And also we have to be proactive, continue the conversations, but also be involved in planning and even changing how things are with technology and with the Internet because they're affecting us all. And we, we can't just be passive and let it happen to us. We have to be a part of hopefully the process making it better. So that was The Cyber Effect by Dr. Mary Aiken. I hope you'll check that out. Again, the book for this week is The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, 27 Psychiatrists and Mental Health Experts Assess a President. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. back to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui. In the first segment, I was talking about The Cyber Effect by Dr. Mary Aiken, a great book, looking at the effect technology the internet is having um, on our children and our behavior, relationship values. And there's definitely a lot more to talk about. And, and since I felt kind of cut short, I'll, I'll continue the conversation a bit more. 
now um, because we really are in this new place, this new time where we don't know what the effects can be. But as I mentioned, it doesn't mean we can't look at what's going on around us. And for me, something that I see so vividly is how much we use things like technology and our phones especially as a distraction from really living our lives. Again, technology itself is not a bad thing. It can be used for good or bad. And the internet actually has definitely done a lot, a lot of good. We definitely can't understate that. But looking at the bad, something that I see so much with, as I mentioned, even myself in the previous segment and others around me, is how much it's taking away from living their life, actually living their life. To begin with, we use our phones to distract ourselves from feeling our feelings, to even connecting to ourselves. So we think of this tool we're holding in our hand as connecting us to the whole world. I can talk to almost anyone, anyone I know. I can call people. I can send a tweet to someone I don't know, um, go on Facebook and make new friends or write to old friends. So in a way, we think of this as a connection device, right? We say, are you connected to Wi-Fi? Are you connected? And we think of it as uh, connecting to other people. But what I think is interesting is how much it disconnects us from ourselves, how much we lose in our relationship with ourselves because of our phones. Uh, I see it all the time and I, I do it myself and I'm trying to catch myself, but people get somewhere, let's say they get to a restaurant and they're first one there waiting for a friend or the rest of their friends. The second they hit the seat, they take out their phone. I mean, it's almost instant. It's almost like they can't tolerate even a few seconds of sitting alone. And actually in the book, Mary Aiken talking about, um, I think it was something like internet, a cyber, smartphone addiction, uh, kind of, I don't know if it's, it's not really addiction that's in the DSM, but um, looking at that, and I think definitely the people, most of us are smartphone addicts, but she said, if you turn on your phone before the plane has landed or as soon as it's landed and before the pilot has said, uh, you may now turn on, or the flight attendant has said, you may now turn on your phones. And it was funny because I read the book on a plane or I was finishing it on a plane. And when I landed, I realized it, I did exactly that. And I almost wanted to tell her about that, uh, like send her a tweet again, as I was just saying, it's interesting. Um, the ways t technology can connect us, but I was realizing I could barely tolerate that moment and I was already turning my phone on. And so it takes us away from ourselves. And most people are on the phone a lot of the time, not trying to actually do something, but just trying to make sure actually they don't feel anything. So it's not to do something, it's to not feel anything. And if we allow ourselves to feel, we'll actually get more in touch with ourselves and see what's there. Now, unfortunately, the reason why people don't want to feel is because very often what they feel or they know that what they're going to feel isn't very good. They're going to feel sad or anxious or maybe even lonely. And that's a big thing that being online could try to take away that feeling, it kind of fills that hole momentarily, but not really in a deep way of feeling alone. But although we might think, well, that's a good thing. We don't feel those negative feelings. We take them away. Uh, we know that those negative feelings are still there. And not only that, they're telling us something about ourselves and something that's going on in our lives or potentially something that's lacking in our lives. And especially this disconnection, 
you know, sometimes people say, um, what is it, disconnect to reconnect or something like that, to basically get off of your phone, get off of the internet, get off of the technology and connect to the people around you, the loved ones you have, to the people who are closest to you. And as I was just saying, also to yourself, we're losing that connection with ourselves because of the smartphone, because we're afraid of what we might feel, what might be there when we do nothing. And we have to allow ourselves to do nothing some of the time. And even this goes to our kids, something I think that's very different just from when I was a kid to what I see in children now, is that when I was a kid and before that, a lot of the time kids had to figure out what to do. There wasn't always an organized activity, a plan, uh, parents making sure they knew this is your activity from this p.m. to this p.m. and you're going to be with this person and that person. We were sometimes by ourselves. I remember actually being with my cousins and our parents would kind of just let us do our thing and we would have so much fun and we actually had to use a lot of creativity to come up with games. We would play volleyball where we'd attach string from one wall to the other, blow up a balloon and we'd play volleyball over that. Uh, the string would be the net. And I think that was really fun and creative. And if we don't give kids that chance to actually be bored, which I know sounds funny, parents think, well, because I love my kids, they shouldn't be bored. But actually, boredom can be a very good thing. We don't always need to be stimulated. We don't always need to be doing something. And actually, when we're given a chance to not do anything, when we aren't told what to do, or we're not being entertained by something and something's occupying us in that way, it gives our minds, it gives our imagination the chance to roam free a little bit. So as parents, we have to actually give our kids that opportunity. Let them do nothing sometimes. That's okay. Let them just figure it out. Let them be by themselves. Not just with the technology, actually, if you can, without that. Let them figure out a game, figure out what to do for fun. And I think, unfortunately, what we're creating is a reduction in people's tolerance for that, for their patience. I think absolutely when I consider or look at kids now and compare kids in my generation, when we were kids, there's way less patience now. And not just in the kids, the adults too. We, we think everything has to happen instantly, has to happen right now. We don't want a moment's delay. We don't want to even watch anything that's too long. Oh, the video's two minutes long? Forget it. If it was 15 seconds, maybe I would see what it was, but I can't watch. Two minutes is not worth it for this. And the way we allocate our time is just this constantly, it's like we're always doing something, but really we're doing nothing a lot of the time, nothing of value. That's something that I see. People are always busy, but busy with what? Oh, I checked my news feed for the 18th time today. And, uh, you know, you went to your Twitter and saw if anything updated this. And you went on that again and looked if anyone, you know, uploaded a new picture on Instagram or liked your pictures and we keep ourselves busy and that way we think we're using our time but what are we doing with our time and as great as technology is and as great as the internet is it's only as good as how we use it and i think technology can absolutely be a great way of connecting people can be on in different countries and they can do facetime and talk to each other face to face how incredible is that i think that's wonderful and i think that's great or you can reach out to someone you didn't know or someone who has a, a rare illness can find someone else who has that same rare illness and they might not feel so alone. Now, she also talks about in the book, the cyber effect, um, cyberchondria, and this what's happening with medical diagnosis and people trying to do, diagnose themselves, showing up 
to doctors' offices with what she calls a Google stack of all the research they've done and how they're already convinced they know their diagnosis. But I do think it's wonderful how someone who's going through something that they think they're the only one can find someone else to connect with, and they can even create a support group that can help them to not feel so alone in what they're going through. That's wonderful. And I think there's so many ways it connects, but I think it's important for all of us to ask ourselves, is technology helping me connect more or am I using technology to connect more or is it leading to more disconnection to the people around me and to myself? And that's very, very important. I see a lot of parents who say they're spending time with their kids, but they're looking at their smartphone and their kid is next to them. That's not spending time with your kids, nor would that be spending time with your husband or wife or any other loved one if you're both looking down at your phone. Time means you're actually spending, if you're spending time together, you have to actually be spending that time in some way connecting. If you're just next to each other in the same room, but both staring blankly at a screen, you're not connecting in any way. So as a parent, be aware of that. How much are you actually spending time with your kids face-to-face, engaging with them? How much are you just in the same room, but you're doing one thing and they're doing their own thing without any type of connection? So for me, that's a very important thing. How much are we using technology to enable or to facilitate connection and how much is it actually taking away. And I think if we each look at ourselves, we'll see that it probably does some of both. And what we want to do is to amplify the connecting aspects that it has and minimize the disconnecting parts. And in order to do that, it almost, for most of us, it'll definitely mean looking at your phones and looking at technology a little bit less. Yes, it's so great that we have this new thing, and it's a wonderful thing. But if we use it too much, it's not good. It's hurting us more than it's helping us. And we can be okay without it. And I'm very much in favor of people doing things like, you know, being out to dinner and everyone puts their phones face down on a stack. Or if you're hanging out with some people, no one checks their phone and calling each other out for it, saying, hey, you know, you've been on your phone and acknowledge when you're doing it too. And let's not do that. Let's really spend some time together. Because I think we're avoiding a lot of things, including our own emotions, but the feelings of connecting and actual intimacy. And that's something that concerns me, especially for this uh, younger generation. But like I said, I see it throughout where we're so used to having talks on text or not talking about things at all or things like ghosting where someone just disappears if, let's say, they're not interested in someone they're dating without a conversation or even a text saying goodbye. They literally just disappear. So I see a lot of ways that this incredible connecting device and these devices of technology and the internet are actually disconnecting us from one another and from ourselves. And I think it's important for each and every one of us to take a look at that. How much am I using technology to facilitate connection and how much is it actually leading to disconnection in my life and to myself? All right, we've reached our next commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Today I've been talking about the book The Cyber Effect by Dr. Mary Aiken and some related topics. Um, people always ask about online dating. And I think it's always a very interesting topic and one that people have lots of questions about and something I think it's important to talk about. So I wanted to talk a bit about that to end the show. But before I go there, in a way related to that, another effect of social media that has become so big 
because of the internet and smartphones where people are constantly accessing um, these different apps, platforms, Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, and uh, Twitter, and amongst others. Um, it's definitely, I think, contributing to, unfortunately, making us more shallow as a civilization, meaning more focused on material things or shallow things like appearance and not just appearance towards physical appearance and attractiveness, but even how we look as far as how our life looks. Um, I think people are very concerned about their social media image and how they look more than who they are as a person. If I'm getting lots of likes online, it doesn't really matter who I am and I'll do almost anything for that. And I think it's very unfortunate. Even um, this idea of going viral and people, I think, go through some really crazy lengths to try to go viral, whether it's pranks that are just, to me, I don't know if you can file a lawsuit for someone, but you see some things that people do on these pranks that to me are just crazy. And you can just tell that people have no empathy for the person who they're pranking. And all they care about is how is it going to look online and Maybe is could this go viral? They don't care about the person. Actually, in the book, The Cyber Effect, um, Dr. Mary Aiken shares this story about, I think it was a middle school student, maybe seventh grade, whose teacher was going into labor. And before acting to help or do anything, he took a selfie with himself and her in the background in pain, um, saying, like, when your teacher goes into labor or something like that, you know, putting a caption. And then it got shared a whole bunch of times and all this. And this is becoming the norm, and it's really scary for me, uh, that people care more about how things look than almost living their life and focusing on the wrong type of thing. So if something funny happens, they don't care unless they were able to capture it and then they share it. Or if they did something cool, they better make sure they, you know, capture it and caption it and put it online and get the attention they are seeking. So this shift towards getting attention this way, I think is a horrible thing. And she talks about it in the book, actually, this kind of rise of narcissism. I don't know if she calls it exactly that, but this, um, I think it's making us much more narcissistic. And, you know, you see people, they go to a concert and I love going to concerts and I'm enjoying it, but you look around and so many people are, are taking videos of themselves to add to their Snapchat stories or Instagram stories. And they're focused on how it's going to look to other people, the concert, rather than enjoying the concert themselves. You know, I think it could be nice to take pictures and videos to document things and to keep them for memories, but that's not what this is about. This is about making sure I look cool to other people, making sure other people like what I'm doing. And I think we're all guilty of it. I'm sure I've done it too, and being preoccupied with how many likes we get and things like that. It's unfortunately becoming common, but I think it's something we have to be aware of. And I think the direction we're going with social media is a negative one that I think is worth looking at. And there's much more to say about that, but I'll leave that for another time and shift to online dating, which is of course related because we create these profiles of ourselves to try to look as attractive as possible. Um, sometimes it might not even be us. And I say that half joking, you know, people sometimes put pictures that don't look like them or don't look like them now or don't look like them during um, this decade, or they actually literally put people of other pictures of other people. That does happen. She talks about in this book, something that's called catfishing, whereas people start online relationships posing as someone else. Um, and sometimes they can even be 
lengthy, several year long relationships where the person pretends like they're someone else showing other pictures and always makes excuses when it comes to seeing each other because they aren't who they say they are being in the relationship. And it's quite bizarre, but it, it happens enough. It happens so much that uh, MTV had a show by who was started by someone who himself was catfished, called Catfish, where people, they would follow people who thought they were maybe in an online relationship with someone who might not be who they were saying they were. And a lot of times that was the case. But anyway, um, first of all, lots of people still have hesitation when it comes to online dating. And although I recognize there are perils and there's things that can go wrong, of course, and we have to make sure we take care of ourselves. She mentions it in the book, but I always talk about this. Of course, you meet in public the first time um, you're going to meet someone, even if you'd like in the daytime, if that makes you feel more comfortable, somewhere where it's busy, so you don't have to worry about that. There is lots of incidents of, if you want to call it date rape or whatever, some kind of sexual assault, uh, however you want to term it, that happens from people meeting on dating sites or things like Tinder or other apps. It, it happens. It's a very real thing. So again, I'm not here to try to make people paranoid, but make them aware of the real possible risks out there. And really when you're getting to know someone and it's the first time you're meeting, it makes sense to me to meet somewhere in public. I always say something like coffee where it's going to be shorter. You don't have to stay for long in case there isn't a connection or an attraction and it's easy to get out of. I would say show up definitely separately. Don't be picked up um, by someone you don't know. In my opinion, that's not a good idea. Uh, but there are those risks out there, but still it is something that can be very good because it exposes you to more people than you normally would be exposed to. And that's what I think is the good part of online dating. Uh, the research that I've seen doesn't support any notion that we can figure out the formula to tell you who is a good match for you based on your profile or the way you answer these 200 questions. We're going to find the perfect guys or perfect girls for you. The research doesn't seem to support that we really can do that. The chemistry of a relationship or the compatibility that comes in a relationship doesn't seem like it can be boiled down into questions as of yet and as far as I know. So I wouldn't be too preoccupied with uh, putting it up to them to find you your match. But what they can do is help expose you to the number of people that you possibly could match with. And especially if you have certain characteristics that might limit the people that you would want to be with. For example, um, most of you listening are Iranian Americans or Iranians, I should say. And if you want to marry someone Iranian, not that you need to, but if you do, depending on where you live, that might be a smaller segment of the population. And there could be someone Iranian who lives 30 miles away from you that would be a good match for you that you'll probably never run into or never have mutual friend and you'll never meet that person. But now online you can be exposed to that person to potentially get to know them. So I'm all about online dating for that reason. And I think in many communities, and I've seen it in the Iranian community, they're still, they feel, still feel the stigma that it comes off as desperate to go online. Um, millions and millions of people, if not billions around the world, uh, are online dating, probably in the millions, I don't know the exact number. Um, and people from all walks of life, from all ages really, and all types of backgrounds are on there. It's not something at all to be embarrassed about. Uh, it doesn't mean you're desperate. To me, it actually means you're taking your dating seriously and you want to find someone. And actually something I hear people say sometimes is that uh, I don't want to do online dating because it's not natural. 
um, which I don't know by natural, do they mean organic and non-GMO or I don't know exactly what natural means when it comes to dating. Is it very natural for people to go to a bar and get uh, intoxicated and then start talking to each other and and that that that's natural somehow? Um, I think we all have this n- romantic notion that we're going to meet each other at a supermarket and both grab the same item and look at each other, lock eyes and, and fall in love. But it's possible that happens. I have a friend, um, two friends, they actually met shopping. So it does happen. But if we're all waiting and holding our breath for that, it's going to be likely that you might be roaming a lot of shopping uh, or supermarkets hoping to find someone, but really just finding lots of food to buy and take home and not really finding a partner to take home or build a home with. So I'm all about going online to, as I put it, meet online, not date online. And that's where, as, as she talks about in this book, this issue can come up where people match on these websites and then they message for days and then it turns into weeks and it turns into even months. And to me, that means if you're doing that, it's a very dangerous game to be playing. But a lot of times people who do this serially, they do it with multiple people, they're actually afraid of the intimacy of getting to know someone really And they'd rather just have some kind of pseudo company or someone in their life at a superficial level to fill that void of loneliness, but they're not looking for something. So I've seen people like this and maybe even encountered someone like this who they just want to have these types of connections online. It could be they're insecure, so they don't want to meet with the person. It could be they're afraid of intimacy and they're doing that. Something's going on. But when you match with someone online, I always say within a week or two weeks, see the person. And don't be afraid, whether you're the man, the woman, whatever the situation might be, to initiate that and just say, I don't want to get to know you in this way, whether it's messaging or even on the phone. I think it's right for us to see each other face to face to see what we have here. Is there a connection? Is there an attraction? And go from there. So I say very quickly, see each other because there's no, um, there's no substitute for that. There's no other way to do that other than getting to know each other face to face. And, you know, taking it in different tiers, uh, phone calls are much better than texting. And the basic one would be texting. If you start texting with someone and that's all you do for days and weeks and months, you're going to feel very close to them, although you don't really know them at all. Uh, And I've seen this feeling. It's an interesting one that people can have of texting someone all day and not having never met. And it gives them almost this feeling like you were with the person the whole day, even though you weren't. And of course, the way we can present ourselves in text is always going to look good and it's so much easier. You just mention the things you do that the person likes. Oh, I'm here now or I'm doing this now or this is happening. And you can very much tailor who you are. But the person doesn't get to know you and you don't get to know the other person. So be very mindful of getting yourself there. If you're a person who does that, think about what you're doing that is keeping you from wanting to meet people in person stay in that comfort zone. What is it? And if you're meeting someone who is that way, don't be afraid to push it. Say, you know, I'd like to see you in person. If not, let's discontinue this. I can't invest a lot of time in something with someone who doesn't want to even meet. And don't be afraid to say that. I'd say, put put your foot down when it comes to that. I don't want to be in a online relationship, a texting relationship. Um, someone called in the show once who was, who contact I think was through Twitter and with someone who was pretending to be someone they weren't. And it took them a while to figure it out. So these things do happen. So meet with the person. And again, you're not going to date online. You meet online in the dating you have to do in person. And you get to know each other in that way. First time, I'd say public something short. Um, 
and then you go from there. Then the online part doesn't matter anymore. You met because of online and other dating you do in person. There's nothing that the website really needs to do or be involved with anymore. It's now up to you to make it happen and see what happens. And the good news, it's becoming more and more common. She talks about it in the book, actually, even some research showing that couples that met online um, fare better than couples that met not online, which I thought was interesting. And I'd want to see some more research on that. And I say that so that people don't feel like they have to hide where they met. I think, again, it's becoming so common that people don't do that anymore. But oftentimes people would joke, especially when they meet on an app like Tinder, well, how are we going to tell people where we met? Kind of like a joke. We'll say we met at the library or we met, again, at the supermarket or somewhere else. Stereotypical that we dream about meeting someone. Um, but now people aren't doing that. And don't be afraid to tell people we met online. There's nothing bad about that. I'm actually um, going to a friend's wedding in a couple weeks. And he and his fiance and soon-to-be soon wife met on Tinder. And nothing wrong with that. Tinder, sometimes people think of as not the app to meet someone serious, but actually definitely is. I know of lots of people that got married um, on such dating apps and websites. So nothing to be afraid of. Uh, even I think Amir is pointing to himself here in the studio. <laughs> Maybe I wasn't supposed to say anything, but he, he's met someone there before too, and many people have. So it's nothing to be embarrassed about or afraid of. And I hope people have never tried online dating and they think it's not for them, I think it really can be for anyone. You you approach it with caution. You try to, as any time you're dating, be yourself, make your profile you. Don't worry too much about it. Yes, put some time into it, but not too much time. Uh, the research also, also shows that we can't really get to know someone from their profile. It might give you some basics that especially might tell you who you don't want to be with. For example, if their age is out of your range, well, you already know they're out. And speaking of age, please put your real age, please put your real picture. Um, I've heard so many horror stories of people meeting someone and finding out they're 15 years older or younger or somethinger than they say they are. Be as realistic and honest as you can. Again, focus on it, but don't put too much time because the person has to get to know you in person. No one gets to know someone from uh, a profile. And you have, if you haven't tried it and you want to be in a relationship, I encourage you to give it a shot and see how it goes. Um, could I guarantee you success? No, but just like I can't guarantee you success dating in any other way. Might you have some bad situations or bad interactions? Absolutely. But same happens in real life too. So I hope you'll give it a shot if you haven't. And again, I want to thank Dr. Mary Aiken for writing this book, The Cyber Effect, that I talked about to start the show and really um, motivated the rest of the show. A really good one in the book for this week, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. 27 psychiatrists and mental health experts assess a president and it was uh, organized by bandy lee dr bandy lee at yale all right we've reached the end of tonight's show thank you to amir here in the studio and everyone listening out there even listening to in session with dr fatty delaqui have a wonderful night mm -hmm.